Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Always in Season explores the lingering impact of more than a century of lynching African-Americans and connecting this form of historic racial terrorism to today's racial violence. The film centers on the case of Lennon Lacey, an African-American teen who was found hanging on a swing set in Bladenboro, North Carolina on August 29, 2014. Despite inconsistencies in the case, local officials quickly ruled Lennon's death a suicide, but his mother, Claudia, believes Lennon was lynched. Claudia moves from paralyzing grief to leading a fight for justice for her son. And that, along with a number of other intriguing, interesting, and enlightening elements in this film, Always in Season, it makes for this an incredible watch. It's a very moving documentary film. And we're joined today by the director, producer, and writer of the film, and that would be Jacqueline Olive. Jacqueline, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here. This is a film about uh, a lot of things that I know something about. I think most Americans who are paying attention have the sense of the racial injustice, uh, certainly post-Civil War. I mean, it goes without saying prior to the Civil War, but post-Civil War with uh, Reconstruction and all of the terrorism that took place during that period of time and lynching. But I was not familiar with uh, uh, Lennon Lacey's case. This was new to me. Uh, it is shocking on so many levels. Tell me a little bit about what the elements were that brought you into making a documentary about him and about these other parts of the film. Yes, uh, this is a collection of lynching photographs and postcards called Without Sanctuary Lynching Photography in America. Um, really stuck with me when I moved back home uh, to Mississippi in the early 2000s um, and saw that exhibit. It's an exhibit of images that are shown in the film of men, women, and children posing with the bodies, um, the brutalized and often mutilated bodies of lynching victims. Um, And just I could not, uh, one, imagine um, what that must have been like for the victims, the torture, the horror of having your community turn on you in that way. Um, Often uh, lynchings were attended by thousands of spectators um, in probably I filmed Over the decade that I was making the film, I filmed in uh, eight or nine communities around the country um, where um, often half the the city, half the town came out to watch a lynching. Mm. And so um, I saw those images and just wanted to understand more about who the victims were. I looked at those the faces of the men, women, and children who were victims of lynching, lynchings, uh, nearly 5,000 in every state before across this country. Um, And so I wanted to understand who they were. Um, and know more about their stories, and then started to look after six months or so of research, started to look more closely at who the spectators were and wanted to know more about their stories as well and how um, everyone came to this point um, of violence that was often seminal in community. It is uh, something that I have personally, I've seen you know, lots of photos that, that of, of, as you just described, lynchings, and it looked like so a day at the at the state fair kind of thing where you see people actually 
Yeah, it's disgusting. I mean, it's just so, it's such a vile and horrible thing uh, when you when when you just consider what was taking place. A essentially a vigilante murder taking place for, in some ways, the entertainment of the people there. I, is am, is that an unfair? Am I saying that in a in a way no, that's it, go ahead. No, it's it's a, an accurate characterization. I'll also say that um, some of the incidents were certainly uh, vigilante killings, um, but often lynchings were state-sanctioned. So yeah. even when they weren't um, legal, uh, there were there were extra legal murders. Um, but often uh, people in authority were at lynchings and helped to make them uh, helped to make them possible, and and helped to organize them. And so people, we have this myth. Um, you had mentioned earlier that you know anyone who's paying attention would understand. Uh, this violence. But the problem is, is that the country is often uh, conditioned to ignore this history. Um, And in fact, what happened is that people who were in authority often organized these events. They were um, um, often at one point well-planned. And so they were advertised in newspapers. People would reserve trains for people to come out of town, from out of town to watch a lynching. Families um, would send notes to their children's teachers, excusing them to, um, from school to attend a lynching. And so there is this myth that lynchings happened um, in the heat of the moment, um, in the middle of the night, uh, and they were carried out by backwards people. But ordinary people from every walk in society uh, played a role in lynching. I want to talk more about that, but I want to go focus for a few minutes on, specifically on the case of Lennon Lacey and what happened, what the what the allegations are, or the alleged, uh, allegedly happened on the night of his death. Um, Would you mind walking through some of that with us? Sure. And I'll just tell you, I'll back up a bit and tell you a bit about how I came to that story. Yes. Um, Because I had been filming for four or five years in communities where people were dealing with um, how to acknowledge the victims and repair the damage of historical lynchings. Um, so, and looking at, you know, the impact on the entire community, how to bring healing to their communities. And um, one of those communities is in um, Monroe, Georgia, mm-hmm. where a quadruple lynching happened in 1946. And a group of people, amateurs, uh, often with no acting experience, came together to reenact a quadruple lynching that happened there. And they do that every year to make sure that the victims are never forgotten. So I've been filming in Monroe for three years. Thought that I was finished filming when a month after... Um, I, uh, I, you know, I ostensibly wrapped production. Um, Lennon Lacey's body was found in Bladenboro, North Carolina, hanging from a swing set um, on August 29, 2014. Um, and uh, the events were that Lennon left his house uh, sometime the night before. And that night, by the way, um, August uh, 28, 2014, was the anniversary of Emmett Till's um, murder, um, the lynching of Emmett Till that happened in um, money, Mississippi. And, um, and so Lennon had left the house and that was the last time he was seen around midnight. His body was found the next morning. Um, and because one is because Claudia knew, uh, felt that her son was not depressed or suicidal. Um, and because, um, she knew her son very intimately and didn't have any indication that Lennon might hang himself. Um, she disputes the police findings. There were inconsistencies in the evidence. Lennon was found wearing someone else's shoes, a size and a half too small. Um, and there were just um, other inconsistencies in the story. 
that really pushed her to want to find answers and to fight to get an FBI opened, FBI investigation opened into the case. And within a few days, the Blayton Borough Police came back to tell the family that uh, Lennon had committed suicide. Hmm. Throughout the film, what is so compelling about the film is, and I think this is a testament to you as a filmmaker, is that you talk to a lot of different people about the events around the the uh, the death of Lennon Lacey, and you're able to get answers that you don't often get with people. It's all the stuff that you think is happening, but not often said in the ways that the people say it in your film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and a couple of people, I'm going to uh, single them out. Uh, the 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 guy who's the the uh, editor of the uh, newspaper. Sure, Kurt Vincent. He's editor of the Blatant Journal. Yeah, and and there were other people in the film that are well. Let's move on. It's time to move forward. Are we still talking about this? Th- those are the kind of responses that you 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 know that are just in, in especially in the context of this film that are just. They're they're coded messages. They're I don't know how would you characterize, and maybe I'm maybe I'm mischaracterizing what I heard in the film, what I saw in the film, but it just it feeds into this narrative of of just below the surface, blatant. <laughs> I say blatant and just below the surface in, in the same sentence, but just that it's there, and I and what I just really appreciate about the film is how how it's there and why it's there. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Yeah. Um, our lead editor Don Bernier, who's also who also co-wrote the film with me, we spent uh, many weeks, uh, if not months, looking at how to layer in all the complexities yeah. um, of and all of the contradictions of the story at one time. And I grew up in the South. I'm currently living in the South, and so I know what it feels like to live in communities where at once you have people who are warm and friendly and who will tell you their life stories in the line at the bank and, um, and this beautiful, uh, rich landscape um, that's also mixed with uh, the historic racial terrorism that goes unacknowledged and the power dynamics that's a residual of that that have changed very little in some ways um, over generations. All of those things are the things that permeate the air as you move through the South. It's actually true. It looks, it's, it's true in different shades around the country, actually. But I really wanted to, because we were set in the South, I really, and because I know the South so well, I really wanted to layer the film with all of those complexities. And so when you see people who say that they understand Claudia's pain, and that, uh, like Kurt Vincent, who's the, who's the, as you mentioned, the editor of the Blatant Journal, understand Claudia's pain and would certainly be fighting to have answers if it were their child, but also feels like it's time to move on. It's, uh, it's with complexity that yeah. I portray those kind of opinions. It was really important that, that there are no uh, dichotomies that are, that are overly simplistic. And uh, this is my observation. I'll, I sort of, in the, for the interest of this interview, I'm a white man, uh, and I... I, when I when I was hearing not just him but others in the film who were who were talking that way, it just it just feels like this is so baked into the community or the culture or whatever it is that these people are a part of that they feel connected in that way that they don't even 
they don't even have to say anything that's racially charged. They can be okay. as banal and benign and sounding as they could possibly be, and it still feels like it's it's right there. It's right there, and it's it's also egregious. And and the other thing that um, I wanted to show, and, and it's true around historical lynchings, in addition to what's going on currently, is the racism that shows up that is not connected to white supremacist organizing. And so people think that uh, lynchings were carried about, out by the Klan, and certainly some members of uh, lynch, lynch parties were a part of the Klan. But you see in these images, people don't have Klan robes on, they don't have hoods on. Um, they are showing up um, in their Sunday best, or however it is that they dress throughout the week, um, just as they are. Um, and so it's really important that we not just examine racial terrorism in terms of organized white supremacist activity, although that's really important, but to understand everyone's complicity in in, in helping to maintain the the institutions of white supremacy, the institutions that prop up the violence and that also benefit from the violence, um, that is subtle and that is, like you said, that looks um, banal and is very much embedded in our in our society. Yeah. Under minor listeners, we're speaking with Jacqueline Olive. She is the director of a documentary film called Always in Season. It'll be uh, opening here in Los Angeles at the Lemley Music Hall on the 27th of September. It's also rolling out across the country, beginning at the Metrograph in uh, New York City on the 20th of September, and we'll be rolling across the country. You can find out more about the film and the information about its screenings, uh, the the filmmakers and such. And the, the website is called alwaysinseasonfilm.com, and that'll get you all the information that you uh, would need to see the film and find out a little bit more about the stories in the film. This is one of those films where, and I'm going to probably be completely inappropriate and say, God damn it, this is still part of, this is part of us. This is still here. And I didn't know, again, I didn't know about this before I saw the film. I'm sorry, I don't know how I missed this story in the news, but I did. And the way that this, the way that you're able to weave together these different elements, we're talking about this reenactment is so powerful right near the beginning of the film this this reenactment of this lynching of this family of four and uh, their unborn um, child is extremely powerful and and that you run that thread through the entire film there's these different things in the history of of uh, racial terrorism and lynchings throughout the film but the backbone of the film is this the story of Lennon Lacey and what happened and why and but it illuminates so much of what we're talking about in the rest of the film. There had been uh, when I reached out to Claudia Lacey, um, Lennon's mom, um, when I first reached out to her and talked with her and Pierre and other people in the community, there were so many parallels between what they were facing in Bladenboro and what I'd seen that communities were doing with around historic lynching. The lack of accountability, the lack of initial interest in appropriately investigating the case in the way that, you know, the given the, the racial climate in that area in Bladenboro and the history of lynching in the way that that merits. All of those things uh, were reflected in the stories in Monroe where uh, the reenactments happened and, and really around the country in the um, nearly 5,000 cases, and actually experts um, say that the, that number is conservative oh, because yeah. of the 
the a number of um, undocumented lynchings um, and anonymous victims that they suspect are out there. They they actually say that the number is probably closer to three times as many, as, as close as 15,000 victims of lynching. And Texas, in Waco, Texas in 1916, for example, 15,000 men, women, and children came out to watch that single lynching. And so when you think about the sheer numbers that lynchings happened across the country in four, it's had a profound effect on this, co- this country. Yeah. And also... When you consider the level of overt um, cover-up around this history, um, there were times when journalists would write in the paper for people not to talk about a lynching. People would collude with each other, um, not to talk about who was there and who was involved. When you have that level of terror and immediate cover-up, and this history isn't unpacked, then the effect across generations, I think, is um, really profound uh, in terms of the trauma, in terms of the pain and fear and terror and um, the power dynamics that are still being bolstered, but also in, in terms of the cognitive dissonance that's passed on, particularly in white families from generation to generation. And when this terror and history is not acknowledged, then what are the things that, that we are encouraging um, our children not to acknowledge the things that are right in front of them in, in their community that have to do with people of color and that have to do with issues concerning um, folks of color right. and other people who are marginalized. Right. And and it is naked terrorism of the African-American community. And how profoundly all of these traumas, the, the trauma of a lynching, the trauma of terrorizing not just the family of the victims of the lynching but also sending a clear crystal clear message that you can you cannot get away from this and so you better you better do what we say we better be behave as we you know find appropriate that all of this stuff it's so those photographs were um, turned into postcards, and those postcards were sent through the mail. And so there's a postcard from that Waco, Texas lynching from a man named Joe who sent it to his mother. Um, on the back of it, he inscribed, this is the barbecue we attended last summer. Oh, on the front God. of it, you can see yeah. a lynching victim who was burned alive, mm-hmm. in addition to being tortured and, and mutilated over hours. And so even when a lynching didn't happen in your state or it happened very rarely in your area, those postcards serve to um, alert people around the country to the terrorism and, that, and to the power dynamics that that terrorism helped to maintain. Um, bodies of the victims were often taken after the lynching, after the photographs, after um, body, part, body parts were taken as souvenirs. Um, the, the remains would be taken and hung in the black community as a way of getting black people to police themselves. And so it absolutely um, was terrorism. And and it's why, even though this is challenging material, it's uh, emotionally intense, it's really important to understand the details, to to understand more fully what's going on now, and to do the work that is really important and that many of us are doing around racial justice, to do it more deeply. Um, I think it's important to know this history. I, I think that's so important because... We were in the initial part of our conversation. We were talking about, uh, well, I was mentioning the Civil War and Reconstruction, and this is a part of history. I remember clearly hearing, reading about Reconstruction uh, after the the Civil War, but Mm -hmm. when I think back on what I actually heard about Reconstruction, a bunch of carpetbaggers went down to the South and took over, and it was terrible, and the people eventually were pushed out. None of the stuff 
none of the the the, the history of where where we where we saw African Americans assuming positions of senator and and positions of power and all the rest of it and all of the ramification we I never really learned it I heard it but I never learned about it and so all of these things we 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 always act like we know what's happened in this country we always act like well that happened a hundred years ago why are we still going over that what all of this and and I know uh, these recent events all what we're seeing in the headlines today in the film you're talking uh, there's a there's a uh, uh, a question as to whether or not there have been systematic lynchings uh, in the last few years what was yeah, it? what was the yeah. number? Uh, Twenty or something that they were in Twenty two. You help me out here. Mm-hmm. Heather Radelaide, who's the yeah. um, attorney who helped pull together the evidence for the NAACP to take to um, the FBI regarding Lynn Lacey's case. Yeah. She had just in in researching a bit of researching, she had found that there were twenty cases similar to Lennon's of black people found hanging in public since two thousand and five. And I did a little bit more research, and there have been nearly 200 cases of suicide, of cases that have been called suicides, oh. of black people found publicly hanging. And so the question for me, it, it's, it's um, outrageous that, that um, this has not been looked at comprehensively in the media. And the question for me is either um, there is violence uh, going on or black pe- there is this new trend of black people deciding to hang themselves publicly and commit suicide in this way. Both of those merit a really comprehensive That's look. Right. Um, and, and we tend to get caught up in looking at incident after incident individually. And it's really important to know certainly what happened to Lennon and to get answers in that case. But it's also important to pull out and understand what's going on systemically around these issues. How are the police showing up? How are journalists showing up to cover these stories? Um, all of those institutions that we actually can Im- affect and impact, um, it's important to, to look very closely at that. If you had 200 suspicious um, white guys hanging themselves, the FBI would have, would have set up a, an office in that, in that community, foreseeable future. <laughs> Yeah, well, my, 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 my guess is that it would have gotten far more attention. The well, other of course thing it is would that, yes. is, is that suicide by hanging generally happens privately in your home. And there's a stigma for black people yeah. um, at, uh, around hanging from trees. And so all of these are questions and concerns that really um, that the country should be paying more t- attention to. But because of this cognitive dissonance that we've developed <sighs> over generations around what's been right in our face, what we've always known about what's happened, you know, as I mentioned earlier, when half the town comes out for lynching, even when you didn't come out for that lynching, even when you weren't a part of it, even when you disagreed, you could hear the cheering of thousands of people in your town um, screaming. You could hear the sounds of the victims screaming. You can hear all of that. There are all kinds of indicators around this violence that we've been taught to ignore historically, and that um, approach has been passed down over generations. And so it's, it's important that we start to have the conversations um, that are really necessary to move towards justice and reconciliation. Absolutely. And I think uh, the title of the film, Always in Season, is apt. And it's a fantastic documentary. I, I just want to compliment you not only uh, on the technical side. It, it's uh, The interviews are compelling. It looks great. You have these four different, uh, what I think of as four different elements in the film that you that you weave together in a way that um, 
just really propels the film along. But this content is I, extremely emotionally in, engaging and, and important for us to really come to grips with. And I'm sorry, go ahead, please. I appreciate that. No, I just wanted to say it's been, um, I've had a wonderful team to work with. As I mentioned, Don Bernier, um, Jessica Devaney is a producer on the project. Um, and they, we have co-producers with Multitude Films. And then amazing cinematographers, Patrick Sheehan, who filmed a lot of that uh, footage that you see that's beautifully done. A lot of the drone, aerial drone footage, mm-hmm. and that abstract footage that you see around the Claude Neil Lynch and around those scenes. Um, was filmed by Patrick Sheehan, and then there is Rodrigo Dorfman and um, Leo Chang, and um, and just many people on the team. Um, our our composer Osea said, I think did an extraordinary job on the score, and worked. We worked um, in conjunction with Bob Edwards, who is a sound designer with Skywalker Sound, and yeah. so just had a. I've had the good fortune of working with some incredibly talented and committed people. It's in the film. What you said is it's it's beautiful to look at and such compelling piece of work that uh, my congratulations to you uh, as the Thank director, you. producer, and writer of the film, and justice for Lennon Lacey and his family. See the film; it's here in uh, Los Angeles on September twenty seventh at the Music Hall, Lemley Music Hall, right there on Wilshire Boulevard. You can't miss it. It's they say Los Angeles. It's actually. To me, it's Beverly Hills, Los Angeles, right in that area. Uh, a great place to see a film. And uh, Jacqueline will be in town. Um, details to be worked out, but she'll be in town at least for the Friday opening and probably at least for the Saturday and be- maybe beyond. Check on that through the Lemley site. Uh, will that be something that you can find on uh, the Always in Season film site as well? Absolutely. If you go to our screenings page, there'll be um, okay. details about the screening and the speakers. And I'll be there the entire week from the 27th until the 3rd of October. And I um, I just want to say that Claudia um, Lennon's mom is still um, uh, seeking justice, still seeking answers. Since we screened the film at the Sundance Film Festival in January, she has attended Q&As with me and really eloquently talks about the impact on her family and um, the fact that she's not giving up. And, and it's really, it's a, a film that is uh, certainly about trauma, but it's also very much about the power of love, um, of the love that you can see that Claudia has for Lennon and for his friends in the community and for herself to really continue to fight for justice in the midst of grief. Amen. Amen to that. Um, well, Jacqueline, Olive, thank you so very much for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Again, the film is always in season. You mentioned Sundance. It won an award at Sundance Film Festival. Richly deserved. Um, what was it, the moral? It was a special jury prize for moral urgency. Moral it, urgency. It, 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 mm-hmm. it, meant a, it meant a lot to our entire team. And I'll just say that I'm really excited to screen the film in L.A. and look forward to seeing you there, Mike. Thank you so very much. Again, the film Always in Season, uh, producer, director, and writer of Always in Season, Jacqueline Olive. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.